From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we listen back to a 2014 interview with New York Times best-selling author and religion scholar Reza Aslan. He wrote the book Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. We talk about Aslan's own religious background, what led him to the study of religion, and how he thinks that religion and politics are intersecting in the modern world. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is best-selling author and scholar Dr. Reza Aslan. Dr. Aslan is the founder of Aslan Media, a social media network for news and entertainment about the Middle East and the world, and he's the co-founder and chief executive officer of BoomGen Studios, which provides creative content from and about the greater Middle East. Aslan's first book is the international bestseller, No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages, and it was named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He's also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, which was published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. Aslan is professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, and he serves on the board of trustees of the Chicago Theological Seminary. His most recent book is the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Dr. Reza Aslan, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the program. We could make a long list. We could start with Remaris and E.P. Sanders and mm-hmm. Albert Schweitzer and Marcus Borg and the entire Jesus Seminar, and I'm just scratching the surface here. <laughs> you sure are. And so the, the question that I would start off with is, why take the time to write another book about the life of Jesus? What was it that drew you to this project? Well, you're absolutely right in that the so-called quest for the historical Jesus is two centuries old. Um, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of academic tomes trying to dig through the layer upon layer of interpretation and myth, of legend, of doctrine and dogma that have accumulated over the person of Jesus for the last 2,000 years and try to get to the man himself, which of course is an incredibly difficult thing to do, which is why so many people have tried to do it. And it's certainly true that at this point there is very little new to say about the historical Jesus, certainly nothing that hasn't already been said before. But my book is not an attempt to blaze new ground by any means. My book is an attempt to distill that two centuries of academic debate and discussion into something that is approachable, readable, enjoyable, accessible to a broad general audience. That's the kind of academic that I have always been. All of my books, from No God But God to How to Win a Cosmic War and to Zealot, have been an attempt to translate, if you will, these academic arguments that scholars have had for centuries in their dusty libraries into a format that can be enjoyed by a broader audience. And I think that's why this book has been such a success, because this is a conversation 
that I think people are quite interested in, but it's one that they have been excluded from for a very, very long time. Well, in the process of this distillation, you single out one history of Jesus in particular for praise, and that's John P. Meyer's four-volume work, A Marginal Jew, Rethinking the Historical Jesus. And you write that you consider this project of Meyer's to be definitive. That's your word. And so I want to ask you a delicate question, because I believe that Meyer was also your teacher, and I know that you hold his work in high regard, but could you summarize for us where you think Meyer didn't fully accomplish the task, where where he needed to go further and think deeper? Father Meyer, of course, is somebody that I do respect enormously. In many ways, he introduced me to the historical Jesus. I was a first-year undergraduate student when I first had the opportunity to hear from him and read the first volume of his magisterial work, A Marginal Jew. Now, that should give you a sense right there, first volume, because he has already published the fifth volume, and I'm pretty sure that he's not even halfway done yet. So, in many ways, that explains clearly what I mean, because while Father Meyer is a wonderful writer, and while I believe that his writing is truly accessible, uh, he has already written a about 7,000 pages on the subject, and has maybe five or 6,000 pages to go. Now, I should also say that I don't agree with every one of Father Meyer's conclusions. Certainly, we disagree on a number of issues. But what's remarkable about Father Meyer's work is that he has done a marvelous job of taking, essentially, all of the various opinions that have existed on almost every single matter, almost every single event, every single word it's been said that Jesus has said, and has approached it from multiple angles, given more or less what the history of thought behind the various interpretations and and conclusions about Jesus' sayings and actions, uh, almost in an encyclopedic way. But again, I would venture to say that that is a kind of text that is not one that the average reader would pick up. It's one that is mostly geared for the specialist, like myself, whereas my text is an attempt to really break through, if you will, the ivory tower and encourage everyone else to be involved in this conversation. This, again, as I say, is is just how I've always thought, how I've always worked. I study the history of religions because I find it to be absolutely fascinating, and I just assume that other people would find it fascinating, too, if they were only welcomed to the discussion. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to internationally best-selling author Reza Aslan. We're discussing his recent book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the broader context that led him to write the book. I hear very clearly that you're saying that Father Meyer has written a particular type of scholarly work and that your intention is to write a different type of scholarly work. And that raises for me this issue of the specialist versus the layperson. And having having gone to school and studied religion myself, I've wrestled with this because the Bible in many ways is presented in our culture as a user-friendly document. But as soon as you as soon as you start to dive into it, you realize that there are translational problems, there are conundrums of meaning, there are cultural things that don't necessarily shift well from two millennia ago to to the present day. And so I wonder how do you make this distinction? Is the Bible something that you have to go to school in order to understand, or is it really a book that can just be opened and read by a layperson with really little preparation at all? Where would you fall on that question? 
the Bible like all scriptures, regardless of what your scripture you're talking about, whether it's the Quran or the Rig Veda or the Gathas, whatever the case may be, really functions in multiple levels. Of course, it is in many ways an attempt for any kind of contemporaneous community to find a moral compass, if you will. There is an attempt by every generation, every interpreter, indeed, who confronts these scriptures to extract whatever meaning one needs from the text. This, of course, as you well know, is a very important thing to keep in mind with scripture. I think that most people believe that individuals receive their morality or their moral judgments from Scripture, when in reality the fact is is that individuals bring their morality and their moral judgments to the Scriptures, which is precisely why the Scriptures have been interpreted and understood in such a diverse array of meanings, why sometimes people will even look at the very same verse of Scripture and come away with not just different interpretations, but diametrically opposed interpretations. I often remind people that in our own history in the United States, you know, a little more than two centuries ago, not only did slave owners and abolitionists use the same Bible to argue their viewpoints, they often used the exact same verses to argue their viewpoints. That is the power of Scripture as it is confronted by a worshiper. But the Scripture is also a historical, contextual uh, uh, element. I mean, there, there is a, a literary quality to it. You can use critical analysis to figure out its dating, its multiple meanings, the context out of which it arose. And that is truly the, the difference between what in academia is referred to as exegesis and hermeneutics. I am not interested in hermeneutics. I'm not a theologian. And, and I'm not interested in developing multiple mystical interpretations of scriptures. I'm interested in exegesis. I'm interested in the historical context out of which scriptures arose, the, the multiple ways in which they have been developed and have evolved throughout history, and, and certainly depending on the culture and the civilizations that encounter the scriptures. And so, If you are interested in that kind of experience of the scriptures, then yes, I'm afraid it does require um, some instruction. It does require someone to, if you will, walk you through the methodological steps necessary uh, to make that kind of sense uh, out of it. But if you are approaching scripture from a position of worship, then certainly that is not necessary. But again, it's very important to understand that there are two distinct ways of confronting Scripture, regardless of what the Scripture is. Well, I'm the father of of two small children, and my daughter goes to a a Catholic school, and as we walk in in the mornings, we pass by the the statue of Jesus, and Jesus is there holding his hands outstretched, and on his hands are the marks of the nails, and my daughter has now begun asking me, almost on a a morning-by-morning basis, Papa, why did they kill Jesus? Why did they kill Jesus? And one of the points that you make in your book, Zealot, that I found particularly revelatory, and by the way, I never know quite how to answer the question for my (laughs) five-year-old, but one of the things that I found revelatory was the observation about the sign that was nailed above Jesus' head Mm -hmm. at the time of his crucifixion that said, King of the Jews. Now, I had always heard this described as a mockery, but in your book, you seem to take a different view, and your argument is that this sign was not placed ironically, but it actually points 
points to the motivation for killing Jesus in the first place from a historical standpoint. I wonder, could you explain? Yes, yes. Well, as I often say, the Romans were known for a lot of things, but humor was not one of them. The sign above Jesus' head is called the titulus, and I think first and foremost, going back to your daughter's very astute question, is that you have to define they before you answer the question, because they didn't kill Jesus. The Romans killed Jesus. And that's the, the most important puzzle piece, if you will, in trying to understand the crucifixion. Crucifixion, of course, was a punishment that Rome reserved almost exclusively for crimes against the state. Crimes like sedition, treason, insurrection, rebellion. These were the only crimes for which one could be crucified under Roman law. Now, of course, people will often say, but what about the thieves that were crucified alongside Jesus? Of course, those were not thieves. The Greek word that the Gospels use to describe them, lestai, does not mean thieves. Klepti means thieves. Lestai means bandits. And bandit was the most common term in Jesus' time for an insurrectionist, for a rebel. So in other words, when you see that great iconic image of uh, Jesus being crucified alongside two men, what you are seeing is not an innocent man being crucified alongside two thieves. You are seeing three bandits being crucified at once. And indeed, Jesus on more than one occasion in the Gospels is referred to as lestis or bandit. And so if the crucifixion is a punishment for sedition against the state, then that really changes the way that we think about the reasons for Jesus' death, and perhaps even it should color the way that we even interpret the actions that led to the crucifixion in the first place. We're speaking today with New York Times bestselling author Reza Aslan. This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. So I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about our partner in producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's been around since 1908. It started out as a weekly event on Sunday evenings, hence the name, with thousands of people attending each week to hear uplifting messages from business people, preachers, statesmen, and philanthropists. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio. In the 1950s, they started one of the first religious television programs anywhere, and they're still doing radio and television to this day. The Sunday Evening Club makes regular hour-long documentaries for PBS, highlighting the good being done by faith communities as they try and make situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs that they've been producing for more than 50 years at their website. That's csec.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reza Aslan, the author of Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Before the break, we were discussing the titulus, the sign above Jesus' head on the cross that read King of the Jews, and the role that it plays in helping us unlock the mystery of why Jesus was crucified. Crucifixion was not primarily a means of capital punishment. I know that that sounds very strange to say, but the purpose of crucifixion wasn't to kill the criminal. In fact, it was often the case that Rome would kill the criminal first, 
then crucify him. The purpose of crucifixion was to act as a deterrent against rebellion or insurrection, which is why crucifixions were always done in the most public of places, in marketplaces, at the entrance to cities, indeed, Golgotha, where Jesus was said to be crucified, was the, a hill that was right at the entrance of the main entrance to Jerusalem, making it impossible for anyone to enter the city without first walking by hundreds of dead and dying criminals hanging on crosses for the crime of defying the will of Rome. And each one of those criminals had prominently displayed somewhere on their cross the titulus which laid out the crime for which they were being executed. And of course, in Jesus's case, the crime was striving for kingly rule or, or treason, sedition. This is an enormously important fact. In fact, I often say to people that if you know nothing else about Jesus except that he was crucified, you know enough to at the very least begin to question the very dominant image of him as a kind of pacifistic preacher of good works with no concern for the cares of this world. Frankly, that Jesus would have gone completely unnoticed by Rome. But if Rome thinks that you are enough of a threat to the very stability of the empire, that they go through the trouble of hunting you down, arresting you, torturing you, and nailing you to a cross for sedition— then you may have been a bit of a rabble-rouser. You may have been a bit of a troublemaker. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind when going back and looking at the rest of the gospel story that precedes the crucifixion. So clearly there's a politics to the way a community reads its holy scriptures. And I, I wonder, given that there is this politics to reading, do you see your own work as a scholar as a political act? Or you know, are you caught up in the fray, or is is your turn to the historical, is that in some way for you an attempt to rise above the fray of politics and stand outside of politics? You know, in the uh, beginning of the book, I, I quote the great uh, biblical historian Rudolf Bultmann, who once famously said that the problem with the historical Jesus study is that the scholar when looking at the Jesus of history often just sees a reflection of himself. And that is certainly true. I do everything in my power to divorce myself from any kind of ideological or political you know, uh, agenda in trying to recreate the biography of the historical man known as Jesus of Nazareth. But I am no fool. I also recognize that there is absolutely no such thing as objectivity, period, whether you're talking about history or scholarship or journalism for that matter. And so... It is absolutely true that I am affected by the world that I live in, the experiences that I've had, the education that I have undergone. I often quite proudly uh, talk about the fact that I was introduced to the historical Jesus at a Jesuit university, Santa Clara University in Northern California. And the Jesuits, as you may well know, are quite famous for, well, for being troublemakers, first of all, but also for their absolute focus on social justice and Jesus's preferential option for the poor. I would say that that is why so many people are so infatuated with the current pope, Pope Francis, the very first Jesuit pope that we have ever had. And in many ways, I, I freely admit that that instruction has affected the way that I look at the historical Jesus. Now, I would say with a fair measure of confidence that 
the Jesus who does have a preferential option for the poor, the Jesus who is preaching on behalf of the weak and the marginalized and the dispossessed, the Jesus whose revolutionary message was geared very much to the empowerment of the powerless, is also historically accurate. But I recognize and fully admit that I have been influenced by my professors, my life, by my history, by my activities, by my own sense of the world, and even by my own politics. There's no question about that. Any scholar who tells you otherwise is lying, frankly. Dr. Oslan, would you be willing to speak a little bit about your own religious background? Do you profess a faith currently? Did you grow up in a faith? I grew up as the product of what I like to sometimes joke as a, a long line of lukewarm Muslims and exuberant atheists. My mother was the lukewarm Muslim, my father the exuberant atheist. I didn't really grow up in any kind of religious environment or with any kind of religious instruction. I, I was born, I should say, uh, for your listeners, that I was born in Iran and, and lived there until 1979 when the Iranian Revolution forced us from our home and we settled in the United States. And growing up in California in the 1980s at a time in which, you know, wasn't exactly the easiest thing in the world to be a Muslim or an Iranian, really encouraged me to divorce myself as much as possible from my heritage, from my culture, from my religion, certainly. Even though, as I say, we were not very a very religious family, I frankly do not have a single memory of ever going to a mosque as a young boy. I had always been deeply interested in religion, however. I think partly this was a result of the childhood images of revolutionary Iran that had seared themselves in my consciousness. I felt deeply the power that religion has to transform a society for good and for bad, and it created in me a lifelong interest in religion and spirituality, though, as I say, I never really had an opportunity to express that in any kind of meaningful way in my life or in my family. When I was in high school, I went with some friends to an evangelical youth camp in Northern California, and it was there that I first heard the gospel story. And it was a profound experience for me. It was absolutely transformative. I, I immediately converted to this particularly conservative brand of evangelical Christianity and, and decided that that was going to spend my life studying the New Testament. Now, of course, I had a, a bit of a rude awakening when I entered university and began to study the scriptures in an academic environment rather than in the environment of my conservative evangelical fundamentalist church. And it was then that I discovered that almost everything that I knew or thought I knew about Jesus was incorrect, and that there was this chasm, if you will, between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And I suppose the easiest way to put it is that I just became more interested in the Jesus of history, the Jewish revolutionary peasant who lived 2,000 years ago in the Galilee was more approachable to me, more appealing to me than the celestial Christ that I had been introduced to in church. And although I eventually left the church altogether, I dove headfirst into understanding as much as I possibly could about the historical Jesus to and, and I should say also that the more I did, despite the fact that I was no longer a Christian, the more I learned about Jesus, the more of a dedicated follower of his I became, the more I wanted to craft my life and my behavior based on the example of the Jewish peasant 
who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, uh, much more so than I ever did uh, the celestial Christ as a Christian. Though, of course, at the same time that I was continuing my studies, I was still deeply desirous of a spiritual connection. And when I graduated from university, it was, it was my professors, including the Jesuits at Santa Clara, who, sensing this vacuum in me, encouraged me to learn more about the faith and history of my forefathers. I knew nothing about Islam, uh, despite the fact that I had grown up in a Muslim community and in a Muslim household. They gave me some books to read, including the Quran. And what I discovered in, in Islamic history, and particularly within the Sufi tradition, which is a tradition that I'm, I'm most adhered to, was a sort of a set of symbols and metaphors that described a, a belief that I already had. And I think this is very important, again, for your listeners, because it's not the case that in discovering this religion, it told me what to believe. It's that I already believed certain things and discovered within this religion a language of symbols and metaphors that gave shape to those beliefs. And so it, that I often say that I had a emotional conversion to Christianity and an intellectual conversion to Islam. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with author and scholar Reza Aslan. His most recent book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, is a New York Times bestseller. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I appreciate so much your willingness to walk us through that journey. And I, now these ways that you've described yourself, you grew up sort of in a lukewarm Muslim household. You, you had, after university, a return to Islam, largely at the behest of your Christian professors, which I find fascinating. You also... <laughs> well, if you, know, if you know anything about the Jesuits, you know that that's not that odd. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also like very much this phrase, a dedicated follower of the Jewish peasant Jesus. And all of that makes me then ask the question, these faith commitments, how do these faith commitments affect your approach to scholarship now, or do they even enter the matter at all? They don't enter the matter at all. Um, you know, I think that for outsiders, non, non-specialists in this field, and particularly for religious people, for faith communities, it's very difficult for them to understand how religion can be an academic discipline, how it is actually a scientific enterprise that the cultural and literary and historical influences that shape an institution, the anthropological and sociological work necessary to understand uh, the, the origins of a religious tradition, indeed the very origins of religious experience, that these are scientific pursuits that are not that often affected by people of faith. Now, I will say that it's just one of these uncomfortable truths about the study of religion that most of my colleagues don't really take faith all that seriously to begin with. Many of them perhaps began from a faith tradition, but very quickly through their studies abandoned that faith tradition. That, by the way, is a common experience, and it's an understandable one. I mean, listen... The first thing that you realize when you study the religions of the world is that they are all saying the exact same thing, and that oftentimes they're using the exact same myths and metaphors to say the exact same thing. And so why bother taking any one of them all that seriously? The 
departments of religion in, in universities around the world are littered with atheists and secularists who have abandoned their faith tradition uh, as they have become more expert in, in the study of religion. I am not one of those. I take faith very seriously. I myself am a person of faith, though I am also a scientist and an academic and uh, someone who, who studies religion from a scientific and historical viewpoint. But I also think it's important that for me, at the very least, I make a very clear distinction between religion and faith. These are not the same thing. Faith is ineffable. It's indescribable. It's deeply individualistic and personal. If you believe in God, then what you believe in is something that is so beyond the human capacity to understand or fathom that you need a language. You need a set of symbols and metaphors to help you express what is fundamentally inexpressible, not just to other people, but to yourself. And that is what religion provides, and it's the only thing that religion provides. In other words, I do not believe in religion. My faith is not in any religion. My faith is in God, and God is beyond any kind of man-made, institutionalized religious tradition. My faith is not in any kind of scripture. Scripture, to me, is certainly divinely inspired. I believe that the Quran is divinely inspired. I believe that the Gospels are divinely inspired. I should also say that I believe Abbey Road is divinely inspired. I believe in a God that is in constant self-communication with his creation. And I don't in any way think that any particular scripture has an exclusive control over that communication. So... For me, my faith is not in any prophet, it's not in any religion, it's not in any scripture. My faith is in God, and God is immutable. He is not affected by any kind of historical or exegetical investigation into a religion. And by the way, I would say that that's true for many people in my in my field. Uh, as I say, I mean, a great many of us have abandoned anything that approaches faith, but I, you know, we're a field of Hindus who study Buddhism and Buddhists who study Islam and Muslims who study Christianity and Christians who study Judaism and Jews who study Hinduism. That is just the field that I live in. And the majority of my colleagues would say that there is really no conflict between their faith or communal traditions and the academic work that they do. In one of the chapters of your book, the, the one entitled May Your Kingdom Come, you plant your flag firmly in the camp that holds that Jesus had a notion of the kingdom of God that was very particular. He was radical, but he was not otherworldly about it. It had an eschatological element, but as I read you, you argue that Jesus fully expected the kingdom of God to be a physical, actual kingdom here on earth. First of all, I want to make sure that I've, I've read you correctly on that point and ask if you have anything to add to my description so far. No, that's absolutely correct. There is, of course, a great deal of debate, and has been for, frankly, two millennia, about what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God. There, by the way, I should say, is no debate whatsoever that the primary focus, the core and kernel of Jesus' ministry was predicated on this notion of the kingdom of God. Nobody disagrees with that, but there is a great deal of disagreement about what he meant 
when he said kingdom of God. And you're absolutely right that that disagreement more or less falls within two branches. Those that believe that Jesus was describing some otherworldly future uh, thing, uh, and those who believe that Jesus was describing a very real and present thing. And I most definitely fall into the latter camp. Well, so then I want to flash forward to the present day and ask about the politics of this kingdom. Because in America today, we have documentation of politicians that have made affiliations with various movements, with the Christian Reconstructionists, with Dominionism, the Seven Mountains theology, and all of these various types of political theologies argue that in some form or other, Christians, and specifically oftentimes this means evangelical Christians, should be enshrining their reading of Christianity into the law. And what I want to ask you is, are these practitioners of dominion theology basically reflecting a modern version of the worldview that Jesus espoused? Or would you want to differentiate in some way, in some manner, the way that these politicians see the kingdom here and now and the way that Jesus saw the kingdom here and now? That's a very, very good question. I would actually go one step further and say that that attempt to create um, a a nationalistic entity that reflects a, a particular uh, religious orientation it goes beyond Christianity. We the term for that is religious nationalism. And whether you're talking about dominionists in the U.S. who want to transform America into a Christian nation founded upon Christian values, or whether you're talking about the so-called religious Zionists in Israel whose uh, loyalty is not to the secular state of Israel, but to the biblical land of Israel, or whether you're talking about Islamists like Hamas and Hezbollah who want to build a so-called Islamic state, or whether you're talking about the BJP, the largest political party uh, in India, the current a party of the of the government in India, which represents a, a conception referred to as Hindutva, which is Hindu nationalism. This seems to be a universal phenomenon and a growing one at that. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with New York Times bestselling author Reza Aslan, the author of Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. We'll be back in a moment. Each week, I hear from listeners who write in to say that they're enjoying the show, and a lot of them ask me what they can do to help to support us. And first of all, I just want to let everyone know that we appreciate so much that you're listening, and thank you. The number one thing that you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. If you listen to us through iTunes, it would also be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review. And if you want to, you could give us money. Earlier in the show, I talked about the partnership that we have with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, and so many good things come from this partnership, but one of the best, by far, is that your donations to our show are now tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. And again, thank you for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. Reza Aslan, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Before the break, we were discussing what happens when religion is co-opted by politics. And I would just say, 
if I may, that those who are interested in this concept of religious nationalism, uh, I write about this in my in my second book, Beyond Fundamentalism, and, and explain why it's on the rise when most people think that you know religious nationalism should be declining as we become more wealthy and more civilized and more sophisticated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, in regard to your actual question, however, I think what's fascinating is not the impulse to uh, continue to create that kingdom as Jesus envisioned it, but the multiplicity of interpretations of what that kingdom is. You're absolutely right that the majority of the so-called dominionists, or I sometimes prefer the word Christianist uh, in the U.S., their vision for what that kingdom might look like really contrasts with the vision of Jesus. Oftentimes, what they are actually uh, describing is a fantasy of the political far right, which makes sense because, frankly, many of these same politicians have turned Jesus into, well, to put it crudely, a kind of tea partier, tax-hating, big government-despising, uh, gun-loving, gay-hating uh, Republican, to be perfectly honest with you. Now, that is not unusual. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about the Christ of faith is how infinitely malleable he is, how he can take on the politics, the social values of, of any worshiper uh, that confronts him. But this is a far cry from the kingdom that Jesus preached about. When you look at the Gospels, the first thing that you notice is that Almost every teaching that Jesus has, almost every parable that he relates, the Beatitudes themselves are nothing more than a description of the kingdom of God as he envisions it. So if you want to understand what Jesus meant, or how he, I should say, understood the kingdom of God, you've got a lot of material to work with. And his conception of the kingdom of God was a radical conception that involved the absolute reversal of the social order. Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are those who hunger, for they shall be fed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall rejoice. But woe to the rich, for they have received their consolation. Woe to those who are fed, for they shall go hungry. Woe to those who mourn, for they shall rejoice. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. This is not some utopian fantasy that Jesus is describing. This is a frightening new reality in which those on the top and those on the bottom will switch places, in which the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, will not be equal, but which, which will, they will switch places. They will take each other's place in the social hierarchy. If that sounds radical and revolutionary to you, it should, because it is astounding the revolutionary nature of that idea. In fact, it was as revolutionary 2,000 years ago as it would be today. Let's be perfectly frank here. If a politician stood up and actually preached what Jesus preached 2,000 years ago, he would be driven from the stage faster than you could possibly imagine. That kind of politics that Jesus espoused has no place in the political mainstream, on the right or the left. So, while I completely agree with you that that vision of 
establishing the kingdom of God is still very prevalent in the political order on the left and the right in the United States. The interpretation of that kingdom is quite different than the radical interpretation that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to internationally best-selling author Reza Aslan. We're discussing his recent book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the broader context that led him to write the book. I'd like to ask a question that has actually some personal stake for me, because I'm a former academic, uh, and a couple of years ago I made the decision to leave a tenure-track position, to leave academia, and to work in the media and the nonprofit world. Good for you. Thank you. And that, that brings me to my question, because you've managed somehow to keep a foot in both. You hold academic appointments, and you work with the Council on Foreign Relations and other think tanks, but you also seem to work very easily in the worlds of media and new media. So my first question is, do you ever find that a difficult balance to maintain? I do. And primarily because, as you yourself well know, academia is an extremely petty environment. It must be the only business that I can possibly think of in which success is actually punished uh, instead of rewarded, particularly popular success. The problem with academia is that it is single-mindedly focused on super specialization. The academics who are most often rewarded in the scholarly environments are those who are narrowly, narrowly focused on some particular aspect of their research. Those who eschew that kind of narrow specialization and instead try to speak to a much broader audience, and particularly those who achieve popular success, are often derided in academia as not serious, you know, as amateurs. Um, and it gives you a sense about precisely why there is such distrust and distaste for academia in the popular realm, and particularly in popular media. Many of your listeners may be aware I, I had a, a confrontation with a Fox News host a little more than a year ago uh, in which I was continuously lambasted for being a Muslim who dared write about Jesus. And I think the what most people got from that interview was incorrect. What most people understood about that interview was that here was a, a clearly conservative Christian anchor who thought that a Muslim writing about Jesus was somehow an attack on her faith. But it wasn't an attack on her faith. That's not what the core issue was. The core issue was her inability to understand religion as an academic discipline, her refusal to recognize that religion is not just a thing that people believe, but it's a thing that people study. And that's not her fault. That is our fault. That is the fault of academia. That is because we spend so much time talking to each other in our dusty libraries, so much time writing incomprehensible tomes that only our colleagues ever bother reading, and so little time trying to address a popular audience, trying to uh, translate our work into something that is not just appealing but accessible – that of course most people see us 
with distrust. Most people don't understand what it is that we are trying to do. And it's for that reason that I have not just a profound distaste for for academia, despite the fact that, as you say, I am still steeped in it, uh, but why I am always, always preaching to graduate students, to universities, to anyone who will frankly listen to me about the importance of breaking through the ivory tower, of speaking to everyone else, of using popular media to communicate our ideas to other people. As I said earlier, most academics I know are in their fields because they find it interesting. Well, if you find it interesting, I bet you other people will find it interesting too. All you need to do is figure out a way to reach them. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to internationally best-selling author Reza Aslan. We're discussing his recent book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the broader context that led him to write that book. What I really like about your answer is that you place the responsibility firmly on the shoulders, not of the reporters, but on us, to do a better job of talking about the passion that drives us into these questions that sometimes take us to the ivory tower. And you say if those if those questions drive you up the stairs of the ivory tower to also drive you out into the public square to where you can make this a more a more accessible sort of of, of venture. So Absolutely. what what could we do better as scholars of religion to educate the media about religion and religious questions? Well, first of all, let me just say that I have noticed the pendulum begin to swing already, particularly among younger academics, younger scholars. Of course, young people, you know, particularly millennials, have grown up in an environment that is saturated with popular media. They are quite used to, for instance, seeing a, a professor of Russian studies discussing Putin with Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. That is not something that is anathema to them. Whereas I think the older generation of scholars, that is something that they just simply cannot understand. And so what I have discovered in speaking to universities across this nation is that younger scholars get it. They understand the importance of translating their work to a popular audience. But I will say, the real culprit, however, is university administrations and, of course, the draconian, outmoded tenure policy, which tends to not just not reward uh, scholars for popular success, but, as I say, punish them for popular success, make tenure that much more difficult to achieve as a result. So the onus is not just on the academics. The onus is on universities and administrators to make sure that their scholars, regardless of what field or discipline they may be in, are thoroughly engaged in the public discussion over these incredibly important matters. Religion is a great example of this. We are a country steeped in religiosity. Uh, every election, election cycle brings out uh, these robust conversations about the role of religion in society, the role of religion in politics. Look at what is happening in foreign policy with our fight against Islamic extremists uh, like ISIS, um, the, the whole concept of the war on terror. These are conversations that scholars and experts on religion must be engaged in. They have a unique access to very valuable insights and information that could drive these 
public conversations and indeed public policy uh, forward in much more beneficial ways. But instead, what do we see? We see seminars in universities. Uh, We see uh, conversations in, say, uh, departments. Those things are interesting, but it is the proverbial preaching to the choir. What we need is academics who feel comfortable being on CNN, being on Fox News, uh, speaking to the New York Times, uh, providing an, an analysis that allows for a far more deep understanding, a far deeper understanding of these issues that have such a profound effect on the lives of all Americans. But again, as I say, I'm very optimistic about it because I really do sense a sea change among young academics who understand what I'm saying, who want to be part of the public discussion, regardless of the particular discipline that they are in. I love that you talk about that optimism because that leads me actually to the the question that I, I want to ask to wrap all this up. As a scholar, it's clear that you've not shied away from controversy. And it strikes me that to be under that kind of scrutiny so often, it must take a strong reserve of courage. And so if it's all right for me to ask, what is it about your work that gives you hope? What is it in this work that gives you the strength and the patience to go on in a world so often eager to misunderstand? I am inundated with comments in person, by email, um, on social media, from people who tell me that that my work has empowered their faith, regardless of what faith that they're in, that it has given them a brand new way of understanding the world, that it has actually uh, lifted a great deal of weight off of them, be that weight from their doubts or their conflicts or even the weight that comes from the um, undeserved certainty that is so often accompanying religious faith. And that's what I cling on to. Of course, there are people who criticize me, who hate me. I've got an entire file of death threats that I, that I have received over the last decade. Um, but I try to hold on to the fact that if the work that I do elicits that kind of negative passion, that I must be doing something right because it also elicits an enormous amount of positive passion. And in any case, there really is no choice in the matter. I think that when you make the decision to be a part of the public conversation, that is the consequence that you have to just simply prepare yourself for, that you will be a lightning rod. I often try to remind people that most of the things that people argue about when it comes to me and my work has very little to do with me or my work. But that I have become in many ways um, a sort of launching ground for public discussions about things like the role of religion in society, the role of academia in religion, the the issues such as journalistic integrity. Um, those are issues that I don't necessarily write about. They're issues that I don't necessarily speak about. But somehow I've become a lightning rod for those conversations. And because I believe that those conversations are so important that I do think that people should be having them, then I, I don't mind that I'm often used as the foil for those kinds of public debates. What I'm mostly excited about is that those debates are being had in the first place. And that, I think, is the dream of any public intellectual, is to be able to 
start a conversation that grips the larger culture, the larger civilization. Um, and for that, I am absolutely just grateful to have that kind of opportunity. Well, Dr. Reza Aslan, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Our guest today has been best-selling author and scholar Dr. Reza Aslan. Dr. Aslan's first book was the international bestseller, No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages and named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He is also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, which was published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. Dr. Aslan is professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, and serves on the board of trustees for the Chicago Theological Seminary. His most recent book, which we discuss today, is the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalton. and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.